Good morning. How are we doing? Good? We're on good? Yes. Good morning. Um, if you guys don't know me, my name is Chris Potter, one of the pastors here at Kessid. Happy 4th. Happy 4th of July. You guys are, by the way, the view from here is very festive. All right, very festive, very red, white, and blue. All right, so well done. Um, um, I want to say uh, good morning to you. Um, so for our time today, we are going to release you to your barbecues and your fun and all that stuff in the sunshine, but we got a little work to do together before we get there, all right? Um, we are in the midst of a series called Tear Soup, and this series, we have kind of a little bit bravely, kind of crazily decided we're going to have a, a, a conversation over summer um, about grief. And this has been an incredibly impactful series and conversation inside of our community. Over the last four weeks, um, we have talked about the benefits of healthy grieving, about how we should grieve and why not grieving can be so damaging using the Bible as our guide and our tear soup book as a valuable resource. And this, this book right here, and we, um, I'm so excited to uh, let you know that we're actually going to hear from the author of Tear Soup in just a few minutes, um, Pat Schweiber, and she's going to come up here. But before we do so, I kind of have to set the tone for our conversation because there's a little bit of a pivot that we need to do um, to talk about it well. Up until now, we've kind of focused on the idea of looking at grief and, and normalizing it and saying this is part of all of our stories and all of our life. We all have, are, and will experience loss of varying degrees in our life. Now, what we want to do and, and be is a community that, that recognizes that and, and, and lives it well, that doesn't hide from that, that doesn't run from that. But then there's a next step to that as well. We also want to be a community that loves each other well through that process. So not only are we supposed to go through that process, but we are to develop, to develop skills so that we can aid others going through that process as well. My question for today is simply, how can we love each other in and through our grief? How can we love each other in and through our grief? I was reminded this week, um, reading in 1 Corinthians, Many of us read uh, the text in chapter 13. It's called The Way of Love. And we hear this at, at weddings and at different times. It's really beautiful language. But really what this is, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it, is some of the main ingredients to love. It says this in verse 4. Love is patient. That's a great ingredient to love. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Is not arrogant or rude. And then it says this really incredible thing that I think we skip over often. It says, it does not insist on its own way, right? Love does not insist on its own way. And I think that this idea, it's quite possible that many of us with the best of intentions, when we come alongside other people and our loved ones especially, that are walking through some of the hardest spaces and times of their life, because some of it's uncomfortability, uh, some of it's not knowing what to do, sometimes what we will do in an effort to love them is we will love them how we want to be loved, right? The way you want to be met in that space, you'll then love them. But what the Bible is teaching us is love does not insist on its own way. And Paul goes on to say this really important thing. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And what he is saying here is there is a wise, mature form of love. 
And I can't think of a more important space to exhibit that type of love than in grief and when someone else is walking through loss. And I think this is, this is my, my challenge of you today is that I think all of us need to recognize that we're not just there. That intentionality does not mean that we are loving wisely. That we need to be willing to put a mirror in front of us and say, how am I doing? How have I done? What are the narratives that I was taught about loving well through this space? And maybe I need some new skill sets that I need to learn, and I need to listen to some other guides along the way. And so that's why we're having this conversation. As we've done a few times in this series, what I want to do is read a few pages from our Tear Soup book um, that will kind of tell the story of what it means to come alongside each other well and, and not so well. So I'm going to read from this book. Some of the images will be up on the screen as well. If you remember from our book, our main character, Grandy, is going through a very deep loss, and she is making her tear soup here. Her, she's going through her grieving process. But at this point in the book, there's this idea that I don't want to do this alone, right? If you've ever experienced loss, I don't, I don't want to do this alone. And it says this. There were also days when Grandy hungered for a thoughtful ear. Sometimes she would ask total strangers, care to join me in a bowl of tear soup? No thanks, most would reply. I don't have time for tear soup today. Even some of Grandy's friends hurried past her house and pretended not to notice the aroma of tear soup coming through her open door. And Grandy found that most people can tolerate only a cup of someone else's tear soup. The giant bowl, where Grandy could repeatedly share her sadness in great detail, was left for just a few willing friends. I'm here, Midge cried. I got here as fast as I could, and I will be here whenever you need me. What a tragedy. I'm so sorry you're having to make a big, such a big pot of soup. Oh, what a relief. Grandy knew she didn't have to be careful what she said around Midge. And Midge wouldn't try to talk her out of anything she was feeling. And Grandy could even laugh and not worry that Midge would assume Grandy was over her grief. Sorry I couldn't get here sooner, said Midge. No problem, required, replied Grandy. I have plenty of help, but most of these friends will be history pretty soon. They'll be over my tragedy long before I am, but I know you'll still be around. I don't know what to say. But I'll be glad to listen, Midge said tenderly. Come on, tell me all about it while we make some bread to go along with your tear soup. These two friends who had shared a thousand laughs and just as many tears pounded at the bread dough together. I feel like I'm unraveling, Grandy cried. I'm mad, I'm confused, I can't make any decision. Yes, I just didn't realize it would be this hard. Why don't we go for a walk while we wait for the bread to rise, Midge suggested. I know exercise is supposed to, be, to help me, but I feel like I have concrete blocks strapped to my legs. We'd better not go too far or you'll have to carry me home, moaned Grandy. Mrs. Cries a Lot called and reminded Grandy that she had been making tear soup for years and would be more than glad to come right over and show her how to make it the correct way. Thanks, but no, said Grandy. This pot has my name on it. Grandy knew better than to let Mrs. Chrysalot or anyone else tell her what she should do to get through this terrible loss. 
There's no one right way to come alongside someone in their grief, but there are definitely some wrong ways. There are definitely some ways that we come along other alongside other people with the best of intentions and insist on our own way. And could it be that some of the scripts that we have been given to meet others in their grief subtly pressure them to get through the tear suit process quicker than is healthy and even misrepresent God himself? We see one example of this, and we're going to just briefly look into the story of Job. See, in the first two chapters of the book of Job, we see him go from a place of blessing to losing everything. Everything. Family, health, possessions, security. And in this deep grief and despair, he is visited by three friends who just want to help. Like many of us, they just want to help. These three friends have names, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but we are going to call them, and by the way, my friend Pat, all right, gave me this title. These three well-intentioned friends, we're going to call them Job's miserable comforters, right? His miserable comforters. Many of us, with the best of intentions, have showed up and literally been miserable comforters before. I know I have. The Bible tells us in in Job 2.11, now when Job's three friends heard about all this adversity that had come come upon him, each of them came from his home and they met together to go and sympathize with Job and comfort him. They did what friends do. They showed up, right? They showed up, but here's what they did. They showed up with a plan for how to come alongside their friend instead of just simply coming alongside their friend. But they do so in a way that isn't helpful. For 30-plus chapters, they go into a discussion with Job about um, bringing meaning to the suffering, and they are doing so with a really broken theology. So instead of, of worshiping and knowing this God that's very essence is love, right, at the core of who he is, they focus solely on the God who, whose essence is justice, but they focus solely on that. And their theology says, hey, if this bad thing happened to you, that means you did something bad. You have some sin in your life that caused you that God did this to you. And so they literally invent sins and, and kind of grill Job and say, did you do this and did you do this? And, and Job is defending himself and said, I did, I did not do that. I'm innocent of those things. And these friends in their effort, right, they're, what they're trying to do with their friend is they're trying to get him from his grief and into comfort. If you can literally visually see it, they show up and they're trying to find the solution, the why to why this happened, and they want to pick up their friend and move him directly into comfort. But there's a problem with that. See, there's a lot to be learned in grief. It's a space we're not supposed to leave until we're done with it. Thankfully, Job eventually turns from these miserable comforters and to God himself, and Job and God engage in a messy, raw, and ultimately beautiful exchange with one another. One of my favorite words is this word, brutal. It's this combination of brutal and beautiful at the same time. That's what this conversation—some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, brutal, right? There's a brutal conversation that happens between these two. It's raw and honest— And it's exactly what is needed. Because in this exchange, Job is at times very confident that God is wise and just. Okay, that's part of it. And at other moments, he is doubting God's very goodness. And he even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. (gasps) You can't do that, right? 
are we allowed to do that? Right? He's left his miserable comforters, and he's beginning to realize that now he is with the Father of compassion, as Corinthians tells us, who comforts us. So important, friends, hear this. In all our troubles, where miserable comforters see you and with the best of intentions want to pick you up out of your grief and move you to comfort, this God meets you in your grief and will get to comfort when we get there. Right? And it will come, but he comes into the grief. These friends wouldn't come into the grief. They wouldn't sit in the grief. They, because you know why? Because they were uncomfortable. Right? Most of the time we usher our friends out of grief, not because it's just the best thing for them, but because we are uncomfortable sitting in the process. It's really important to see that God honors Job's struggle and how he came honestly before him. You know, uh, a verse I'd never really taken into account before, at the end of this conversation between Job and the Lord, it says, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, uh, the miserable comforter, I am angry with you and two of your friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. Do you, do you see that? Do you see what happened? He, he used the word accurate for what Job did. Do you remember what he said? At times very confident that God is wise and just. At other moments he's doubting God's goodness. And he even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. Yet somehow God calls this accurate. How is that so? How is that the case? Could it be that God honors Job's struggle and how he came honestly before him with all of his emotions and his pain and his messiness and simply wanted to be with God and he found the God that simply wanted to be with him? See, the messy way, the messy way was the accurate way. The, the broken way was the accurate way. The other way wasn't. This is exactly where we're called often to go. When you came in here today, you were handed uh, a communion cup. I'd love for you guys to grab that right now because we're actually going to take receive communion together a little earlier in our service than normal. But what I want you to do is grab this little kit that you were given. Okay? I, can, I, can we be honest for a second? I like both love and hate this thing. Okay? I, don't, I love communion, by the way. I love communion. But this kit is both awesome. Grab the bread out for me. This thing, somehow that's bread, right? That's bread, right? Regardless of the form that it comes in, right? Regardless, of, I want to hold that in your hand. Regardless of the form that this comes in, this entire apparatus, this kit, what this is is a grief story. First Corinthians tells us, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim what Byron shared with us last week, the great grief. Somehow, Jesus is doing the exact opposite. And he's saying, you that come in here regularly in your comfort, I want to regularly put you 
staring at grief. That there is something here that is for you, that is important, something to be found here that, that is to grow you and, and grow you into a person that can love others, love the Lord, and love yourself with a wise form of love. And so we need to do this regularly. We need to not run from grief, but actually embrace it. Embrace it. This is what Jesus calls us to. So what we're going to do today, right now, is receive communion together. So just this bread his body broken on our behalf. We partake, remembering together. And then the cup, his blood poured out on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. We remember together. Corinthians goes on to tell us that this communion, when we do it, should be an examination. And this examination needs to be more than just a relationship with God, that that's where it starts, but also the calling that we have, which is to love one another well. How are you at meeting someone else in their grief? Could it be that we need some guides and some coaches that can help us to know how to do this well? So what we're going to do today I can't think of a better guide and coach than our author of, of Tear Soup, Pat Schweibert, to come up and share with us a little bit about just what do we do going forward. I want you to feel, right, as you leave this place later today, all right, our friends online, as, as you leave this day, I want you to feel sent as an agent of love, all right? And I want you to be okay to be overwhelmed by that, but know that we have some guides along the way that can teach us how to meet people on their darkest days, with a redemptive form of love. So we're going to ask Pat to come up here. Will you help uh, me welcome Pat up here? Hi there. We, uh, just so you guys know, this is our third one of these today, so we are real, we're, we're best friends now, so, um, <laughs> and fourth in the last couple days. Um, I have had the honor of spending some time with Pat, and, and before we get started, I just want you to know, um, this is a person who lives this, that doesn't just write about it or talk about it. Uh, she'd probably tackle me when we're done, but she's going to leave after preaching and helping share three times today and, and go serve the homeless, which is something that she does every single day. And so she, she, has, she has created space in her life for people in, um, to come and be safe in the hardest spaces of their life. And so uh, I just want to acknowledge and say thank you for being willing to share with us and just acknowledge the honor that it is to learn from you a little bit today. Um, when we talked, I, you know what I want to do to begin is just go back to the beginning and say, how did we get here? How did we end up with this Tear Soup book? You shared a little bit about starting out as a nurse, and although there was some training that you received, um, grief was not one of those areas. Right. I um, was um, a young nurse in the uh, 60s. That's 1960. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and that was not part of our training. Mm. At, um, in those days, we were taught about death, but we weren't taught about grief. Mm. Uh, we didn't. We were really the miserable comforters, I can assure you. But um, 
This was a pre-Kubler-Ross era. Um, one night, I was uh, with one of my patients, and she was dying, and she said, I need to talk to my priest. And uh, so I went to her chart, and this is 2 o'clock in the morning, and saw it was Father Appleby, and so I called him, mm. and he said to me, can't you see I've already given her last rites? There's nothing more I can do for her. Click. Mm. Uh, the fact that 60 years later I still remember this guy's name tells you how pivotal this moment was for me. Um, my first feeling was, uh, was anger. You know, how dare him? Um, my second feeling was fear mm. because I realized that what I was going to have to do was what I wanted him to do. Mm. And that was to go minister to this woman. And so... I got my first um, real lesson on how to be present um, with someone who was dying and be a container for her own grief yeah. of having to give up her life. Wow. So um, that, was, that was big for me. Um, when I moved to, Cal to uh, Portland, I had two young children and was going through a divorce. And I, um, and I needed to find work, and so I started working for visiting nurses. And this was in the early 70s, and this was pre-hospice era. And, um, and so I was given these patients. It just turns out that all of my patient load were people who wanted to die at home. Mm -hmm. uh, I had no training for that, um, but I... Um, I figured that, you know, I would just follow the lead of what my patients wanted and needed, and I could go from there. Um, so um, I did that, and um, what I found out was, in talking with the families, they would say, as soon as she becomes comatose, we'll send her to the hospital. Um, because, in talking with them further, they were afraid of what death looked like. Um, they, um, they had no experience with death. Mm. Uh, if we look back at our, um, at our history, in the early 1900s, 80% of people died at home, and they were born at home. Uh, in, at the end of the century, in 1999, 80% of people died in the hospital. Uh, and what we had around us at that point were the intimate strangers, well-meaning doctors and nurses who didn't really know kind of the folklore of that particular family. Uh, and, and it wiped out all of the education that people got um, by caring for their loved one at home. And if, you know, when um, some of the some of houses had parlors. They called them parlors because uh, after people died, the family bathed, dressed, and laid their, their loved one out in the front room or the parlor, wow. uh, of which is not done very much anymore. 
So all of those information, all that information that people could have had, they don't have just because of the change in our lives. But I told my family because death is not convenient uh, that they didn't always die on my shift. <laughs> that <laughs> I told them that if they needed me um, other than my shift, I would come with them, come to them. But I might have to bring my children and. Uh, lo and behold, it was my children who really taught me about how to talk with people who were dying oh. um, and talk with people who were anticipating being the, uh, the widow or the widower. Because it was my children who crawled up on the bed and uh, got close to my um, patients and asked them all the questions that they wanted to talk about, like, are you really dying? Wow. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, they had this vehicle to allow them to, uh, to talk and for the loved ones who also weren't talking, that they could see that, oh, they do want to talk. So I'm pretty indebted to my children for being my teachers there. I had a, an experience at church um, one day when I came and was um, um, heavily um, grieving and I was weeping and uh, one of the women in the church came up to me and said, uh, do you think you need a counselor? <laughs> and what I realized at that point was um, church is not a safe place to show my tears. Mm. Um, which is a very sad yeah. statement, um, but it's true yeah. that most of our churches want us to be happy and have a stiff upper lip and show that if you're a good Christian, um, mm -hmm. you won't have to feel bad, yeah. uh, and that is just not true. Yeah, yeah, and, we, and part of the reason we're doing this series is just recognizing that again well-intentioned we've we've built many many saying and little cultural things that are like they're there or oh stop crying which communicate this idea that that emotion isn't okay here when when probably what we're doing is is just trying to help them bring them out of grief but mm -hmm. instead could, could it be that it's necessary for us to adopt a new way of thinking and communicating to people inside of their um, grief to, to love them well together because the church is not and we have not always done a great job right. of doing this. And one of the things that people talk about is how uncomfortable people are with their grief mm. and uh, and they know it. Yeah. Um, one of them is you can see that um, and um, some of you may be um, you know be uncomfortable with, with hearing this but they know they see you, but you pretend like you don't see them mm -hmm. when they're at the store or some other place. And in talking with people about that is, yeah, they're uncomfortable because, oh, I didn't send that condolence card or I didn't know what to say. Yeah. So I just decided rather than putting myself in an uncomfortable place, I'll just go on my way quickly. Mm. Um, People talk, you know, when, when we talk about what, what grief feels like, people feel like they have a heavy coat on when it's got big rocks, you know, uh, weighting it down even more.
just kind of that heaviness feeling of grief. Sometimes they feel like they're in a bubble, that the world is kind of muffled. They can see what's going on, but nothing's really getting to them. Yeah. Um, or they feel like they're in a one-way mirror, mm. yeah. that they can see you, but you, um, like I said, pretend like they can't see, yeah. uh, you can't see them. Uh, you feel like you have a, a disability, mm. that uh, where you're actually handicapped by this disability called grief, and we are not handicapped accessible yeah. in our culture on how to be present to grief. And so they're not good, safe places. Some people will actually drive to another part of town further away from their house so that they don't meet people because they don't want to get in this uncomfortable place. They do want to talk. One woman was telling me that she stopped people, strangers in the store, to talk um, yeah. because she needed yeah. somebody to be that container. Yeah, that's a great word, the container. The, the need is there. And I think to become yeah. the container has some, has some core values to it. And you have a card that you showed me um, that you have handed out, and I'm going to put this up on our screen, and you can see that at times it's a recognition that you're not helping. What you bring to the table right now um, isn't helping, and so uh, we need some core value, core value so that we can be helping. And, and so I'm going to read through these and just allow you to, to kind of elaborate on them a little bit. It says, here's how you can help me. Don't try to fix me. Tell me more right. about that. Right. We, um, we like quick fixes, good times, um, moving, um, moving to being um, kind of inside the box so that we don't let um, our emotions spill out all mm. over. We're, we work so hard at looking like we're okay yeah. <laughs> and, and when we're not. But if we're really going to do grief, you have to be willing to let it get messy. Mm. Uh, and so you have to be willing to cry, to be angry, to be sad, yeah. to, um, to do whatever it is that you need to feel in order to move through this thing called grief. We don't ever get over it. We get used to it. Mm. And um, that means that we're not always going to have the, the, the scary emotions right at the beginning. We won't have those for 20 years. Yeah. But you will have these moments in time, like little potholes, that will give you that grief moment, that will send you back, that will help you to remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great segue into the second one. It's just this, let me be sad. Yeah. Yeah, people need to be okay with being sad. But if you're, um, if people are saying, there, there, don't be sad. It's okay, don't cry. Mm. Um, you are um, saying that how they are acting isn't okay. Yeah. When we, um, sometimes we try to pathologize grief and, and, and by how we treat it. When I say that is think about when, we have, when we're dealing with a pathology, we medicate it, we try and cure it as quickly as possible, and we stay as far away from it as we can so that we don't catch it. Mm. And that's how we treat grief yeah. so often, yeah. that we, um, you're acting inappropriately, yeah. you're, um, you're crying too hard, yeah. you're making me uncomfortable, and so I think we need to medicate you. Yeah. 
rather than, and so we're saying, you're not doing this right. Uh, and so people think, oh gosh, I'm not doing it right. And some people will actually stay on medication much longer than they need to because they're afraid that yeah. they can't do it right. Might be messy. Yeah, it, and it becomes a crutch for them. Goodness, and you know, I, this is one of the areas that I would really, again, when we talk about this idea of a mirror in front of ourselves, um, it may be a good practice to get next to someone who knows you well, who has seen you function, and ask questions like, how am I at allowing mm -hmm. you to be sad, or others mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. sad? Could, could it be that without knowing, I try to usher you out of that yeah. and, and ask questions like, how can I do better? Or what do you need from me in this mm -hmm. moment? So that there's a curiosity yeah. that says, I don't have it all right now. Yeah, I do believe that we all have good intentions mm -hmm. with um, how we're um, acting. But our good intentions are not always the right, in, yeah. um, the right actions. Yeah. Um, trust me to know how to grieve. Yeah. Um, grief is unique as your fingerprint, and um, sometimes we assume that, you know, if, if you just grieve the way I grieve, you'd, you'd be doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, um, that's really dangerous when we start judging each other's griefs. Um, and when you think about uh, a couple that are grieving together, you're in it together, but you're really in it alone. Mm. And um, women and men will grieve differently most of the time. Uh, women um, are more intuitive, and they like to talk their grief out. Um, so we've, we've given that, you know, hers, is, hers is called intuitive grieving. His is called instrumental grieving. Instrumental grievers tend to grieve side by side, not face to face. And they don't want to be abandoned, but they don't have the need yeah. to talk about it. That does not mean they have forgotten. Mm. It does not mean they're not feeling. But they may not show you. And that's everybody's right to decide who you're going to show their grief to. That's so, gosh, as you say that, it's so powerful to, to think we could... We could be sitting next to, let's use the couple as an example of the, the way in which both need to be loved can be completely different. And that's why we talk a lot about this concept of Scripture and Spirit here at Kesed, that we both need the mm -hmm. truth, the foundational truth, but we need the Spirit, mm -hmm. this creative force to come in and say, what does love look like now? Right? Mm -hmm. For one, it may be sitting and creating mm -hmm. a really dedicated space mm -hmm. for safety. And for another, it may be a round of golf. It may be just fishing mm -hmm. alongside. It may be some level of just activity alongside because we're, we're, we're not, mm -hmm. um, that's not what grieving should look like for me right now. But that, mm -hmm. again, that, friends, I hope we, we feel a bit of the weight of this. That doesn't always just come naturally. That takes some mm -hmm. intentionality to be able to meet someone in that mm -hmm. place well. Yeah. And sometimes we have to remember, too, by saying, uh, let me know if you need anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, you probably won't hear from them. Yeah. Um, but going over and just deciding to cut their grass um, might be the thing to do rather than saying, would you like me to cut your grass? Yeah. 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 Um, mention my loved one's name. Yeah. People love to hear 
somebody else say their name. Uh, and when you, when you mention their loved one's name, you're giving them permission to talk. Mm. Uh, and sometimes that's what people really need, is because they have been told so many times, there, there, let's not talk about it, let's move on, yeah. that they need you to say, um, uh, I was thinking about Bob the other day, and that then gives them permission then to tell a story or to ask for another story from you. Yeah, and, and this card's kind of designed around the loss of someone, but I think um, for our conversation around Tear Soup, um, this is any sort of loss. This is uh, what Pat said to me the other day is it's um, sometimes we're afraid to bring it up because we don't want to upset them as if we think they've, they've forgotten the about the grief, as if Not our bringing it up is going to be, have them go, oh my gosh, that's right, that did happen. They're carrying that <laughs> wherever they go. And so um, one of the honoring things that we can do is actually just acknowledge what, what's in the room already and then give them the opportunity to talk as much or as little as they want to in the process. Right. Yeah, as long as we don't, you know, close the conversation off, we'll know when, to, mm. to, when, when, we, when we can move on. But so often because of our discomfort, we'll change the subject rather than that opportunity that's placed right before us yeah. to be present. Yeah. So good. I think we talked a little bit about this idea of let me cry. Um, but the last one also is help me remember. Yeah. They don't ever want to forget. Mm. And um, so looking at how we can remember, remember when we're um, at Thanksgiving together um, around the, uh, the table, remembering those mm. that have died yeah. and saying their name. Uh, that's a great comfort for people. Yeah. Um, people notice when the person doesn't remember. Yeah. Uh, you know, and one of the things that um, all of us wonder is, will I be remembered mm. when yeah. I die? And um, so using this opportunity to remember someone who has died gives us some sense of comfort that, oh, you will remember mm. me too. Mm. And uh, not just remembering their dying time, but their living time. Yeah. And all the things that they were and contributed to our lives. So good. Um, there were a couple things that um, you said to me while we were talking that stood out to me. One was just, <laughs> and I think this is for all of us, me mostly, as never give up the opportunity to shut your mouth. <laughs> and I think um, we are really uncomfortable in silence. You know, and we fill the void that's there with our... I know for me, I'm, I'm honestly embarrassed a bit at, as well-intentioned, brand-new pastor <laughs> showing up to hospital calls with my Bible and my verses memorized just waiting to bring my comfort, right? Just, just, mm -hmm. just give me the opportunity in the room. Right. Well, we think that um, words are going to comfort mm. people, and actually there isn't anything that you can say that's going to make them feel better. The only thing that could really make them feel better is to make this, this whole terrible thing not have happened. Yeah. And uh, so when we are doing our 
are talking and throwing out you know, possible um, answers to why this terrible thing happened to you, what we're doing is we're minimizing, intellectualizing, and justifying mm. this loss. And so that is of no help to anybody. And you mentioned the three H's. Yeah. So uh, the, some of the best things to remember to do is to hug them. Getting close and giving them a hug is much better than any words mm. you can possibly say. So hug, hush, <laughs> never give up the opportunity to keep your mouth shut, and um, hang around. Mm. And hanging around, you know, part of what happens is people think that, you know, or they get the sense that you're afraid of their grief, or maybe that you're going to catch it, and um, so therefore, um, hanging around is an important statement that I'm with you even when you're crying, even when you have nothing to say and I have nothing to say. I'm still going to be your friend. I'm still going to be here with you. Oh, good. Maybe how we can close our time is, is you said one thing to me. You said, it's okay to be mad at God. Just don't stop the dialogue. And I think for us, um, as people that are sent out, for, uh, before I forget, um, as, as you, those of us that are here today, we made these cards for you as well. So you can take these and have them in your wallet and in your purse, and we'll post these online as well. Just some of these kind of truths to carry with you because you are sent, all right? You are sent people to, into these spaces, and you're not going to be able to put these on your calendar, all right? The time will come where you are sent, and I, we pray that you're ready for that. Um, but... I am hopeful as I look forward, as I think about if, if we can be people that not only are willing to move into that darkness with each other, but in that space, aren't coming with all the answers, and literally just doing what Job's friends wouldn't do, which is turn each other back to the very God that, they need to, that we need to talk to in the first place, in our messiness, in our brokenness, in our stuff. If those two things can happen, I just, I think about the healing that can happen in a community and what, how that can reverberate throughout a, a bigger county and community and world, right? And so I know for, in our conversation, it's just been that wherever you're at, even how mad you are at the circumstance that you have a God that meets you in that place, is not afraid to hear from you in that place. And so as we kind of close, I'm wondering, um, could you just pray for us, pray over us as we close our time, as we're sent into our worlds as to be, being agents of love? Yeah. Loving Creator God, you who have given us everything, you who have given us life and love, we thank you for bringing us together today to be with each other, to learn together. Mm -hmm. God, thank you. God, we know that there are so many questions that we have that we don't always have the answers for, like why did he die? Why did he have to die now? Why did she get to live? Why do children suffer? Why 
can't life be easier? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why, why? But we thank you. We thank you that you are with us, that your light does shine through the darkness. Help us to allow our hearts to not close in on ourselves, but to explode, to be wide open so that we can feel your love, experience your love, and share your love. We thank you that we are reminded that it's all good because you are in everything, so it's all good, even the hard stuff, because we know that it is through the hard times that we are going to learn more about you and feel you more, and that our relationship will become deeper and deeper and deeper. We thank you for the teachers that you've given us, for our brother Jesus, and for all the teachers that we are going to meet along the way. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you help me thank Pat for being with us today? <clears throat> Consider yourselves sent. All right, we don't know when but you will be. And we pray that you can bring with you um, a love that shows up in the darkness. So don't forget one of these cards on your way out, friends. We hope you have a wonderful 4th of July, and we'll see you next week. God bless.